We are back in the book of Hebrews. I'm very excited about that. Hebrews chapter 5, we're covering verses 1 through 10 today. I want you to imagine as we get going that you're a Jewish boy living in first century Jerusalem. Your name is Levi. Today is career day. You're out of school. And there is a career fair on the Temple Mount. Early in the morning, you enter a maze of booths and tents, each one looking for apprentices. You see the farmer's booth, the vineyard's booth. Not many people are at the shepherd's booth. There's the shopkeeper's union. Even a blacksmith has set up a fire and is giving demonstrations. There's even a carpenter's booth. But the one that catches your eye, the one that has more glitz and glamour than all the others combined, is the booth for the Levitical priesthood. You see, they've got uh, the priestly garments set up. They've got people uh, dressed as gatekeepers, singers, Levites, and priests. But the one thing that catches your eye even more than all of that is the dress, the garments, the uniform of the high priest. You've seen it before from a distance, but now you get to see it up close. The gorgeous white linen fabric covered in a, in a blue robe and then an apron over that called an ephod. And this priestly apron is made up of blue and purple and scarlet and even gold fabric twisted into beautiful, beautiful embroidery. There are two large onyx stones on the shoulders, each one having six tribes of Israel. And then there's this nine-inch square breastplate that has another 12 stones, each one representing a tribe of Israel. They're closest to the priest's heart. There's a checkered sash, and it's all topped off by this magnificent linen turban with a gold plate on the front of it that says, Holy to the Lord. Who is the man that wears these garments? Who is the man that fulfills this office? And as you shuffle through the scrolls, talking about the different job descriptions, you come across the one for the high priest. And it starts off by saying he must be from the line of Aaron. And you're a little bit excited because your name is Levi and you're from the line of Aaron. But the more you read, you realize this is not the kind of job that you apply for. It's sort of a, a don't call us, we'll call you, for it is clear from Exodus 28 that the high priest is chosen by God. But then you notice something else. Often one of the back tables you see you see another scroll, another job description. This one is in a wood box with a, with a glass case covering it. 
And you ask one of the priests there, can I, can I see that job description back there? That's interesting. Why is it in a glass case? And he quickly brushes you aside and says, no, 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 it's, uh, it's not important. It's another high priest position, but, but, but it cannot be filled. It never has been, never will be. Still, I'd like to read it. Can I look at it, please? And he brings it out and shows it to you. And at the top it says, The Eternal High Priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. And you start to read the qualifications for this high priest. And you are blown away by the otherworldly nature of this position. Surely this man is right. There is no way that anyone could ever meet these requirements. There's no way that anyone could ever fill this position. Who is this high priest? He has no lineage. It says he too is chosen by God, but yet he is not from the line of Aaron. He has no beginning and no end. His priesthood is not just for a lifetime. It is eternal. He too is beset with weakness, and yet he is without sin. And he too is a mediator for God's people, like the Aaronic high priest, and yet he does not offer sacrifices, but secures salvation himself. Who is this man? Well, that's what the author wants us to discover today. That's what the author of Hebrews, whoever he is, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants us to see today. And of course, we know the answer is our Lord Jesus Christ. But we get to walk through this text today, and He's going to show us. Would you pray with me? And we'll look at it. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for Your kindness. We thank You for this body of believers. We thank You for their hunger for the Word we thank you for their commitment to gathering together and not forsaking the assembly. We thank you for the one another's and how they are utilizing their gifts. We have so much to be thankful for. And yet, Lord, with boldness, we approach the throne of grace and we ask for more. Father, we pray specifically today in these next few moments that you would use the word of God to strengthen our faith. You would use this Word of God to grow us in desperate dependence upon our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that You would shape us, make us more useful for Your kingdom, make us more bold for the gospel, make us pursue holiness out of a genuine love for You because You first loved us. All these things we can ask with great confidence because we know that You have begun a good work in us. We know that we were a wretch, and yet we have been saved by your amazing grace. And that grace does not end at, end at salvation, but progresses through our life and grows us and matures us and uses us and causes us to walk in the good works which you have prepared beforehand. And so we are eager today, Lord, as little children before the Father, saying, use us, put us to work. 
Show us how it's done. Give us a heart for the lost. We ask these things with confidence, knowing that you can and will do above all and beyond all that we ask or think. Stir the affections of our heart. Change us today, Lord. As we gather together, change us. May we worship in response to what we hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's look at our text, chapter 5. But before we get there, I want you to look back with me at the previous text. I know it's been a few weeks, so we're going to do a bit of a refresher. Verses 14 through 16. Am I cutting out a little bit? Mm. What do you want to do, Jeff? We're good? Okay. Just ignore it. I'll talk loud, okay? Verses 14 through 16. These are the keys to unlocking chapter 5. And it's not really that complicated because we know that we don't have chapter breaks until when? Until the Middle Ages. And so if you were uh, a recipient of this letter, again, possibly in Rome, small church of Jewish, Jewish believers who are, who are doubting whether they should stay the course or, or go back, you would be reading this in one sitting. So 14 through 16 are absolutely essential to understanding this section on qualifications of the high priest. So look at verse 14 with me. It starts out with what? Therefore. Now all of you are getting a little nervous because you know I'm not going to stop it. Verse 14. I've got to go back further, right? Well, we've been out of Hebrews, so let me bring us up to speed. When we say therefore, we have to look at the preceding summary text, and we have seen professing believers who, one, have developed an unbelieving or a hard heart. They've been drifting. Two, resulting in God's wrath abiding on them. They're not losing their salvation. Many possibly are showing, if they continue to drift, that they never were saved. And as a result of that, number three, being unable to enter God's rest. So think about that. We've been looking at believers who are drifting. In fact, the author has given us an illustration. Do you remember the Old Testament illustration? It was out of Numbers 14. And it was the covenant people of God who had made it across the wilderness... They were ready to go into the promised land. They sent 12 spies in. Ten came back with a no-go answer. They said, no doubt the land certainly does flow with milk and honey. Nevertheless, the people who are in the land are strong. Their cities are fortified. And there are giants in the land. Translation... It's not safe. It's not safe. We can't do it. Yeah, I know God's been with us. I know He's fought our battles. I know He's provided for us. Manna, water from the rock, pillar during the day, cloud of fire at night. It's not safe. And the author shows us both the principle and the practical 
of how we can avoid having this unbelieving, this doubting heart, this fear of man heart. Rather than fearing man, we're called to what? Fear God. We're to trust in His Word. We're to stay the course in order to enter His rest. Our timeless truth was the church, we applied it to ourselves, the church needs to have a healthy fear of the consequences of disobedience so that we will hold fast to the Word of God. We need to realize that those who drift away and fall into disobedience, who do not persevere to the end, never had salvation. Therefore, we need to hold fast. And so if you want to, we need to kind of supplant, therefore, with, with a bit of context, a bit of background. We need that healthy fear so we will hold fast. So look at verse 14. We might, we might kind of put some commentary in there like this. Because the church needs to have a healthy fear of consequences of disobedience, so that we will be diligent to enter His rest, and, we pick it up there in verse 14, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, and yet is without sin." Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It is 14 through 16 that encapsulates virtually the entire book and sets up chapter 5. Hang with me. Because Jesus is our great high priest, We are able to hold fast to our confession. And we are able to draw near to the throne of grace. We need to have a healthy fear of disobedience. What's the answer to that? Hold fast and draw near. To what? Well, it says hold fast to our confession and draw near. But the author goes a step further and he says, let me explain why. Let me explain how. And it all has to do with this great high priest. The church can endure suffering because of the object of our faith, our great high priest. The church is able to hold fast to our confession and draw near to the throne of grace. Why? Because we have a great high priest who is in heaven mediating for us. Are you with me so far? You see how this is all going to fit? So he's going to tell us about our high priest. He's going to tell us about the object of our faith. And he's going to tell us in terms of what we already know. What did they already know? They knew about an earthly high priest, Aaron. They knew about the Aaronic priesthood. Like that young boy Levi, he recognized those garments. He knew Exodus 28. He saw what happened every year on the Day of Atonement. What he didn't know about was that other high priest, that other job description, that Melchizedekian high priest, that one with other 
worldly qualifications. If we think our earthly high priest was amazing, how much more is this one from the order of Melchizedek? If we're called to hold fast and draw near, how much more will we be able to do it realizing that the very object of our faith is standing there in the throne room mediating for us, praying for us, guiding and directing our steps. You see where this is going? You think this might be important for a suffering little church that's thinking about punting the faith? You think this might be helpful for us going through tough times in the future? Well, there's even more here. If I could press us just a little bit more before we get in. Verses 16 slides in to chapter 5. This hold fast and draw near because of who Jesus is. Look back at verse 15 and I'm going to show you a connection. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. How does he describe this high priest? One who can sympathize with us, sympathize with our weaknesses. Now look at verse 2 of chapter 5. He can deal gently. This is talking about the Aaronic priesthood, but he's making the connection. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself is also beset with weakness. Verse 7, in the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who is able to save him from death. What did Christ do when he was suffering? He prayed. Is there something here that is going to show us that not only is our high priest otherworldly, not only does our high priest have qualifications beyond what we could imagine, not only is he great and in the throne room, but he identifies with us. He understands us. He knows what it's like to suffer, to be tempted, to want to take a shortcut. That would make me want to draw near in prayer. That would make me want to then reach out to one who understands. The powerful part is amazing. The identification part, the compassion part, that's, that's just incredible. Our Lord understands us. So that's the thrust for this passage. You're like, that's a long introduction. It's okay. We'll be done here in three, four hours. No, the rest goes quickly, but it's important to understand that. That is the thrust. And the way the author is going to do it is he's going to simply compare the priesthoods. From the order of Aaron, he's going to show us a high priest. And from the order of Melchizedek. And he's going to compare and contrast them. One is an earthly, Aaronic priesthood. That's our first point. The second one is an eternal Melchizedek priesthood. And he's going to cover three areas with each one. 
He's going to show mediation. And I'll repeat these again. Don't worry about it. Mediation, identification, and election. And then for rhetorical effect, he's going to flip those and do the same thing. Election, identification, and mediation. So he's basically looking, real simply, at three characteristics of each priesthood. An earthly one, a heavenly one. And if he can raise our understanding that Jesus Christ, our Lord, is our eternal heavenly high priest, then during times of suffering, we're going to pray. We're going to pray because we know we've got a Lord who is alive, who is in heaven, who's in the very throne room. He's mediating for us because he identifies with us. Because he too was beset with weakness. He too suffered beyond anything we could imagine. I'm amazed, just a side note here. You know, I didn't preach Hebrews for 15 years because it scared me to death. Okay? The other one's Revelation. That's next year. (laughs) But I'm continually amazed when I'm studying this as to how something that is so doctrinal can be so devotional. Have y'all noticed that? It's, I guess I shouldn't be surprised. It's so refreshing. It's so rich. It's so deep, and yet it's, it's so devotional. And I, and I know there's times here where or our heads are swimming a little bit, but y'all do such a good job of just hanging on. And it seems like when we come out the other side... It's like, oh, that was worth it. That was worth it. I I know what I can do this week with that text. So let's look at the first one. The earthly Aaronic priesthood. Mediation, identification, and election. This is talking about the earthly priesthood. Verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. Mediation. Mediation. The high priest obviously had to be a man in order to represent men. It's kind of obvious, right? Has to be of like solidarity, of representation. We see this most clearly on the Day of Atonement each year, where the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and represent the nation of Israel, atoning for their sins with a sacrifice, and sprinkling the blood on the mercy seat. But now look at the second point, identification. The Aaronic high priest was able to identify with those he represented. Verse 2, he can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself is also beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins, as for the people, so also for himself. It gives us a little bit clearer picture into this man who represented the nation. For all of his priestly garments, and as amazing as that was, and all that it represented, he was just a man. He was beset with weakness, both physically and spiritually. He grew tired. He grew hungry. He grew old. His mind wasn't as sharp. 
He understood his own physical frailty, and he also understood his own spiritual depravity. Those robes didn't make him stronger, better, smarter than anyone else. And as a result, it gave him both the compunction and the compassion to be gentle with the ignorant and misguided. Kent Hughes explains that dealing gently, that phrase, was used classically to define a course of conduct that was about a middle course between anger and apathy, between being incensed at sin or being laissez-faire about it. These are the sins that frustrate us, disappoint us. It's not high-handed rebellion. That's not what the Day of Atonement was for. But that priest understood what it was like to get tired and become irritable and sin against his family, to snap at his children, to get discouraged rather than rejoicing, to make stupid decisions, to get embarrassed and defensive, to get discouraged instead of rejoicing, to be lazy, to be sharp. And it was the smell of his own flesh that gave him, again, both the compunction and the compassion to deal with his people as a shepherd does in a sweet, kind manner. Chapter 9, verse 7, describes this Day of Atonement. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. It was this weakness of frame, both physically and spiritually, um, that would require him to kill a bull for himself and for his family before ever making a sacrifice for the nation. And with this, he would pray a prayer of confession. The Mishnah, which is an oral commentary, it's not inspired, nevertheless records one of these prayers. Once a year, before he sacrificed for the nation, as he was doing the sacrifice for his own sin, he would cry out, O God, I have committed iniquity and transgressed and sinned before Thee. I and my house and the children of Aaron... They, holy people, O God, forgive, I pray, the iniquities and transgressions and sins which I have committed and transgressed and sinned before me, I and my house. So there was mediation, there was identification, and then finally there was, write down, election. To be an Aaronic high priest, you did not apply for the job, but it was God who chose you. We know that from Exodus 28, verse 4 says it. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. And so the author goes through and says, here's what you know. You know what it takes to be an earthly high priest. You know how he functions. You know the relationship he has with you. How does your heavenly, eternal high priest compare? And if you don't understand this, 
That's the reason you're not rushing to hit your knees in prayer during times of suffering. That's the reason you're starting to drift away a little bit and wanting to go back to the synagogue. If you understand who Jesus is, then he's going to put you at a crossroads. You're going to want to hold fast and draw near if you're a genuine believer. Look at the eternal Melchizedek priesthood. Now watch these qualifications in reverse order. Write down the word election. Verse 5, So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The author again combines two well-known Messianic Psalms. If you're a Jew, you know these by heart. It's Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, and Psalm 110. And what he's trying to do here is take what they know to be true and say, Jesus fulfilled these Psalms. Jesus is the Messiah. It's like we talked about this morning in equipping hour when Peter said, this man, this man who you killed according to the predetermined plan of God, he is the Messiah. Now, the authors already used this in chapter 1 to show Christ's superiority to the angels. But look at this first one. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Paul uses this when preaching in the synagogue on his first missionary journey at Pisidian Antioch. Chapter 13 of Acts, he says, And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, and that He has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Paul says the same thing in Romans 1, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. How is this priest, how is the priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, different than the Aaronic priesthood? Well, to start out, qualification-wise, you got to be a king. What? Yeah. In order to be a priest, in the order of Melchizedek, you have to be a king. Remember, Jesus was not from the Aaronic line. What does it say here? God has begotten him. He is the only begotten of the Father. He is the Prince, the King of Heaven. Now, we're, we're going we're gonna to look a whole lot at what it means to be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. The author is going to spend a lot of time on it. I'm just going to give us a glimpse today. But, but think about that prerequisite to be this kind of priest. Talk about a qualification killer. Have you ever been on LinkedIn or, or, you know, looking for a job and you see this job that looks really interesting to you? I know this has happened to me before. And, and the first line says something like, um, requirement, um, must have a PhD in economics from an Ivy League university. If you don't have this, don't even consider applying, you know. So I, I end up throwing, you know, all these out when I was back in business looking. 
That's the way this is here. No, no one can do this. Who, who, who can meet these qualifications? The one man, the man, Christ Jesus. Uh, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. In fact, go ahead and turn there with me real quickly because we're going to wade into all the way through chapter 10 learning about this order of Melchizedek. And it's, it's more than just symbolic. It helps us understand exactly who Jesus is and what role he fulfills. And so I'll give us a glimpse there. Chapter 7, verse 1, it talks about Melchizedek, king of Salem. Now, if you want to do it for your homework, you can go back and look at Exodus chapter 34, and it will tell you this story. But here it gives us just a preview. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth of all the spoils, was, first of all, by this translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem. Salem became what city? Jerusalem. Salem means peace, okay? Which is king of peace. Verse 3, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Now, we don't have to know a lot there to pull in some characteristics. One, this priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, must be like Melchizedek. And Melchizedek was a king. He was king of Salem. He had no genealogy. We don't know where he came from. We don't know where he went. Like Jesus, he has no beginning or end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the only begotten of the Father. He's not from the Aaronic line. He is from God himself. He is God. It is a perpetual priesthood. It is not one that ends with his death. And like Aaron, he was chosen by God. But you're meant to be blown away by these qualifications. If you thought, like Levi, that, that man, that high priest from the line of Aaron, that's, that's top shelf. That's as good as it's ever going to get. Whoever gets that job, man, he, he, he's got the brass ring. You're meant to read this and say, oh my goodness, Jesus is so much more. So much more. We, we see that over and over again in Hebrews. Jesus is so much more. But then he doesn't stop there. This high priest from the order of Melchizedek identifies with us. Look at verse 7. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. Where is that, by the way? That's Gethsemane. That's Gethsemane. To the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Learned obedience doesn't mean that he, he was practicing disobedience and learned obedience. It's the concept of completeness or perfection. And it's this, you think you're suffering? Jesus, the high priest of the order of Melchizedek, understands. 
Because he suffered too. You know how he suffered. You know how in Mark it says, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here with me and keep watch. And how he fell on his face and he said, Father, please let this cup pass from me. That was not the cup of physical suffering. That was the cup of spiritual suffering. It was the cup of wrath, whereby God, Almighty God, set His righteous wrath destined for us upon His own Son. And Jesus Christ drank that cup of wrath to its bitter dregs. He learned obedience in that He stayed the course of suffering. One commentator said it this way, it's like, He stayed in the school of suffering until he graduated. You think you're suffering? Jesus, your high priest, understands. He too suffered. He grew weary. He too was beset with weakness. He became discouraged. He felt the physical pain. He felt the lashes of the whip on his back, the punch to the jaw. He tasted his own blood. He knew the sting of rejection. And yet, Hebrews 4.15, he was tempted in all things. He was tempted to quit. He was tempted to take a shortcut, but he was without sin. Do you think maybe your high priest who understands who bore the full breadth of suffering and didn't quit, might be able to help you stay the course. You see where this is going? It's the object of our faith. You've heard me beat this dead horse before, but I'm so tired of hearing people talk about their faith without using the name Jesus Christ. Your faith means nothing apart from the object of your faith. When we say faith, we better be saying in Jesus Christ right behind it. Otherwise, it's worthless. Even the demons believe and shudder, right, James? And so there's this identification of the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who spoke the worlds into existence, who is in the throne room of God, who prays for us and intercedes for us understands because he was weak. He suffered. The author keeps, to, keeps ramping it up. He then gets to mediation, our third point. Verse 9, And having been made complete, perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now that's interesting. Year after year, the high priest from the line of Aaron mediated through the blood of bulls and goats, through sacrifice. And it was but a shadow because it didn't actually forgive sins past, present, and future but it was symbolic of the perfect sacrifice, the perfect Passover sacrifice that was to come. So he mediated as a representative, you might say in a shadow form, but this mediator, the the Melchizedekian high priest, 
He did not offer a sacrifice. He himself was the sacrifice. He didn't provide a way. He became the very source of salvation. To who? What does it say? To all those who obey. Paul described it this way. This is how Paul describes salvation. And they became obedient from the heart. When Christ says, follow me, that's what he means. There is never an intellectual ascent that doesn't travel the 18 inches to the heart into real obedient following. It's a transfer of allegiance. It's a commitment. So think about this. Kind of pull it together. The Aaronic priest could mediate with a sacrifice once a year. But Jesus, the eternal high priest, not only became the sacrifice once and for all, but Romans 8.34 sat down at the right hand of God. The work is complete and also intercedes for us. He is the perpetual, eternal high priest who bears your burdens, who knows your pain, who has felt your suffering and more, who cares, who is compassionate and watch this and in control. He's not in the cheap seats up in heaven saying, yeah, it's really sad. I felt that before too. Man, I'm really sorry about that. No, he's sovereign. He orchestrates every detail. Satan is on a short leash, right? Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Paul in 1 Timothy 2, 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. This is why when on the cross Christ cried out, It is finished. What happened to that veil with the Holy of Holies? We are done with the Aaronic priesthood. Why? It could not accomplish salvation. And Christ did. So what are we supposed to understand from this? This is what's great about expositional preaching. The same exact thing that the original readers were meant to understand. The same exact thing. Whatever you know of a mediatorial high priest who identifies with us and intercedes for us, Jesus is so much more. He actually is the Son of God. He is actually God of very God with no beginning or end. Aaron died. Aaron does not intercede for us. By the time my imaginary friend Levi here is going to the, uh, the job fair. Annas and Caiaphas are high priests. Not qualified, corrupt, and could care less about you. But Jesus understands our weaknesses. He understands what it's like to suffer, and yet was without sin. He intercedes for us daily in the very throne room of God. Hold fast. Draw near. 
to the throne of grace. We have an eternal high priest who is in the very throne room of God. He understands, he identifies, and he has paid the price. Will he not continue to mediate? That's what we have to remember. Take Jesus off the cross. This is why we don't have crucifixes, okay? He rose from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of God. He is interceding for us. Will he not calm the storm or calm his child? So what's our response to be? Now that we know all this, pray. What was the first century response to be? Pray. Pray like you mean it. Why? Why? Because we have a high priest who is mediating for us. We have a high priest can actually do something about it. We have a high priest that can give us the peace that passes understanding. For those of you who are chronically anxious out there, right? He has a high, we have a high priest who has been through everything we've been through and ten times worse. Your high priest understands. George Guthrie says it well. Tell me this doesn't fit modern-day evangelicalism. We want to walk with God in the Garden of Eden. God, bless my life. Let me know you. We want to walk with God in the Garden of Eden, Eden, having never entered the Garden of Gethsemane. Yet the two gardens are a package tour with a specific itinerary. The point of this whole passage is to explain that holding fast to our confession and drawing near to the throne of grace are worth it because he is worthy. Hitting our knees, asking God to intercede is worth it because our high priest is there mediating for us. I wrote this one thing down to close with. We, drawing near means taking it to our Lord in prayer, knowing our high priest has been here where we've been and is now there in the throne room. <laughs> 